Welcome to the Friendly Maples Lounge, the podcast all about board games, new and old, weird and fun, and our thoughts and feelings on their playability. I'm your host, Jen Flores. And I'm your host, Chris Ingold. Today we have a very special and awesome guest, a very good friend of mine, Miss Bonnie Boyd. Hi, Bonnie. Hi, thank you for inviting me. So we thought that uh, today Bonnie would be the absolute perfect guest for us because Chris had a brilliant idea about some ways that we could discuss games and how we play them. So obviously we've been talking to all of you a lot about different games that we play and different styles of play, but we've never really dug that deep into it. Before we get too much into that, let's learn a little bit more about Bonnie though. Bonnie, tell us a bit about yourself. How did you get into board games? Hi, um, so I've been gaming for maybe 20 years or longer. I grew up, like most of you, playing Monopoly and the generic games that you have around at home. Uh, It wasn't until I started going to um, anime conventions and meeting other geeks that play role-playing games that I became aware of the world of board games and what it has to offer. So my first convention was the the big board game one in Canberra, CanCon, um, and bought a carload full of board games in that first trip. And my progress through the gaming world, I feel, has gone from intense Euro games. Um, I loved Paragrid when I first got into it, and now I've progressed through the years to loving light games and party games. Do you know what's really funny? How many people have we spoken to, Chris, where, including yourself, where Power Grid was the first really big game they played? Well, Power, yeah, Power Grid wasn't the first big game I played, but it was a very, it had a very key moment in my gaming history because um, I think I've talked about it on the podcast before because it was the favourite game of the organiser of one of the um, local game nights back in the UK that I went to, and it was the initiation ceremony that everybody had to play Power Grid with this guy <laughs> and get defeated very, 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 very harshly. <laughs> he would sit there and completely annihilate you. And that was the induction. Power Grid's a great game, but it's such a common one. And it's a, a huge one for Matt. I mean, in Melbourne Maples, um, our founder, um, uh, Matt, Matt Otting Power Grid, I think is Matt's favorite game, or certainly Friedman Freeze is his favorite game designer. Um, and he will bring a massive stack of green boxes. Because uh, for, for those who don't know, Friedman Freeze puts all his games in a, a lurid kind of Frankenstein green type box. Um, so he, he's got a massive collection of even some pretty obscure uh, sort of Friedman Freeze games. But that's uh, that's quite a journey. So what do you think uh, informed the journey? Were there any kind of milestones along the way from Power Grid to, uh, to those sort of more party games and stuff? Or has it just literally been, just don't have enough time to learn the rules. Give me something easy. <laughs> um, learning the rules can sometimes be a factor. But I think there's some light games that still take time to learn. Uh, I think it was just my appreciation for what's involved i think we're going to discuss this later but the competitiveness how much time i want to sit there investing in one game some longer games and more involved games are still just enjoyable because you don't know who's going to win until the end and you still have a chance to maybe come back from that but there's also those games where you make some wrong moves at the start and that kind of ruins the whole game for you because you have to I have been in those board games where you sit there for two hours waiting for everyone else to finish essentially because you know you've already lost we've all been in that situation that's for sure yeah Yeah. and we'll definitely be getting to that later in the in the podcast so that I think is that is going to be part of the topic of that but I'll just say for now it's a a bit of a spoiler I hear you I really hear you on that one so the uh, Bonnie you may as well sort of go go first what's the last board game you've been playing 
So I got Flamecraft, the new worker placement dragon game. It's fantastically themed and fantastic game, and I wouldn't call it a light game. I'd call it a medium game. Uh, reminds me of Lords of Waterdeep a little bit, um, but maybe even more complex in some ways and simpler in others. So really loving that. I had the chance to actually play that with Bonnie. Yeah, and I love it. I want to get a copy of it so bad, but I I have a rule. So we're coming up to, I I guess everyone will be probably listening to this towards the end of July. My birthday is at the end of August, and I have a rule for myself that I don't buy anything that I really want for the couple of months leading up to my birthday because – Every time I'm like, ooh, I want that thing and I buy it around my birthday, Rod tells me off because he's like, oh, I was planning on buying that for you. So as much as I want to buy Flamecraft, I'm going to wait until after my birthday just in case that's what Rod has decided he's getting me for my birthday this year. It probably isn't, but I loved it when we had the chance to play it. It's so cute. Yeah. It looks fabulous. and I've seen it played uh, loads of our events and I haven't actually had a chance to sort of play it myself at all but I saw it laid out on one of those lovely board game tables that, that Gameway had at one of the events and and it just it looked so much fun and so engrossing it's got a really long board as well hasn't it yes it, it seemed to stretch out quite which is quite nice actually because there's loads of those sorts of rectangular tables where you're fighting over like a board that is just too wide whereas this fits it yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was looking at that and thinking somebody's designed that that doesn't have a big round table because I'm trying to wonder <laughs> who there must a lot of game designers I have this theory have big round tables that nobody else has <laughs> and that's why the games are shaped like that and then you can't fit them onto a normal kind of rectangular table at a convention yeah. but but yeah no, it looks fantastic Jen what have you been playing Well, we had Board in the West on Friday night so I got to play. 10 Wickets, which is a brand new game that's just been released by one of the local designers, uh, Ryan, Ryan, whose surname I can never remember. Boucher. Well, it's either Boucher or Butcher, and we're going to have to get Ryan on and ask him first whether or not he's a Boucher or Butcher, because actually I don't know how to say his surname, but B-O-U-C-H-E-R. Um, and if you're looking it up, Seabrook Studios. And it's amazing. Like, I'm not a cricket fan. So obviously 10 Wickets, it's a game about building a cricket team for yourself, but it's more about numbers and it's hard to find a good two-player game. It's a really well-balanced, awesome two-player game that if you haven't checked it out yet, definitely check it out. I think we're going to do a special episode with Ryan about his games and the ones that he's designed, so I won't say too much about it. I also had the opportunity to play a bit of Sushi Go. I love Sushi Go. And uh, Chris and I were playing (laughs) Ticket to Ride, (laughs) my personal favourite game. (laughs) And it was a very interesting game, wasn't it, Chris? I go hot and cold on Ticket to Ride and I still want to play the uh, Stay at Home Ticket to Ride, which I know we've referred to in sort of previous episodes, maybe one or two ago, just because of some of the creativity that goes into that. But I'm also not a massive fan of Ticket to Ride, which will probably be for reasons that we'll come back to later in the day. But on Friday night, I was, <laughs> I was, I've been suffering from like a head cold or so for a very, very hectic week, and my brain was just not operating at all. And so I think I probably got even my lowest score in Ticket to Ride uh, history. But it was, it was fortunately not a negative score. 
No, but I it thank was goodness. It, it... I think is the it's a, so if it, on the board, if you looked at the board and you didn't know ticket to ride, you didn't know anything. If you'd have just taken a photo of the board, it would have looked like I had won. <laughs> yeah, because I hadn't made it round to the hundred point. Ah. <laughs> so Chris ended I mean, like up. I just scraped it. <laughs> I think Chris ended up on a score of about seventy-two or something like that. And was it even that? I thought it was more like fifty. Was <laughs> it? I don't. Know. I don't even remember. No, it was at least because we'd we'd gone around the board and come back around the other side, so it was at least seventy something. And I ended up on 132. <laughs> so I won. Like I quite often win Ticket to Ride mm. just because I've become very good at building my strategy around I'm going to just every ticket that I get, I just try and connect them all with one path. And mm-hmm. it tends to get you some of the big scoring things like, yeah. you know, the, the longest route or the most cities connected. And we're playing Ticket to Ride Europe. Um, which obviously the the rules of it are a little different just to the base ticket to ride. But Chris accidentally misunderstood a rule clarification that I told him around stations where I said Mm. you can't connect two pieces of track by two stations, like you can't have a station and then another station. So what he did Uh was he went, oh, cool, I'm going to put the city that I'm trying to go to, a little bit of track to that and then a station connecting somebody else's train to another station Uh and then from the other end went oh I have a piece of track up to two stations away from it so I'm going to connect this one up to that station in the middle Uh and I was sitting there looking at it for a bit going I don't think Chris has understood this properly and after a few rounds pointed out to him and went Chris you do realize that those two are not connected right it can't be connected by two stations like that like you need to have another piece of track in the middle there and he's just like oh shit (laughs) yeah in fairness (laughs) i have played like the game before i've played the game a few times before but really only like kind of like every year and a bit because i i'm not I, I'm not that into Ticket to Ride. It's, it's, it's a good mm. game, but I'm just not that into it. Um, and um, and so I should have known, right, because mm-hmm. I have played that rule before. But it was one of those things where I just asked that because I was in a, a little bit of a tangle where I was like, right, okay, there's one way I can do this. And that way is now almost involves doing something a little bit semi-impossible. And in the end, I just did that thing anyway. Um, mm-hmm. And it was fine, but it just left me about three moves maybe four yeah. moves if i was lucky with well maybe <laughs> between two and four moves if i was lucky with the cards short mm. of this little kind of fork at the end of the track which would have completed two routes mm-hmm. so if i'd have got that basically then obviously cost me the minus points and the additional points so that was probably about 32 of the point difference and then it would have been a competitive losing score I'd still be last, but, <laughs> but it would have been a competitive losing score rather than the ridiculous one but it, it is what it is but mm. the um I had no brain at all that night. And it was one of those things I remember about the stations and the tunnels, in fact, in Ticket to Ride, that they're, they are a little unintuitive as you're going at them. They're not complicated yeah. rules. But the first couple of times you're looking at it, there was something about how you visualise them that is a little bit messy on mm-hmm. the board. And it's like with the tunnels, um, in particular, a couple of the colours, they're quite hard to see. That said, I'm not 100% sure I could think of a better way to design those rules are and the rule definitely makes it better than the american version of ticket to ride or the original because effectively with the original version of ticket to ride you can get in exactly the situation that you were describing bonnie where you look at it and go right i am now screwed and there is nothing 
that I can do. Yes, nothing do you can do. Apart from sit here and wait for a little bit. So the stations give you a additional way around that. And the tunnels also stop people doing a land grab really, really, really quickly for certain bits of track and cutting everyone else off. They kind of make it a little bit of a dangerous thing to do. So good rules. But it is one of those things where it's just like when I hadn't played for ages, I was just like, hold on, it's that. But the only other game, obviously, I played the uh, Ticket to Ride as well and Sushi Go, but I was playing last night Kabuto Sumo again with the very, very, oh. very cool t- Total Mayhem expansion with Joe, uh, which introduces little wooden ladders, uh, little wooden guitars and matchsticks and briefcases and all sorts of junk that you can mm-hmm. end up chucking on your Kabuto Sumo table. So Kabuto Sumo, for anyone who doesn't know, is a dexterity game that is a bit like the old games that you would have played on an old school desk back in the 1980s where you shove pennies around into each other, but on a little kind of like cardboard um, table that, that you have built up with a whole bunch of discs. And you're basically just trying to shove your opponent's beetle sumo wrestler off the <laughs> table. But what the expansion does is it'll throw in things like, right, you might have little nunchucks that you sprinkle over the top of it. And if you <laughs> spill too many nunchucks, then you're going to lose first. Or there's a briefcase and you knock the briefcase off, you also lose. Or if you put matchsticks on there, and if you get the matchstick in the middle, then you win. Or you could be a dung beetle, as I was, and you get your big lump of dung if you pay for it and can get, knock enough pieces off. Then you can shove your dung lump on and use that to brute force your opponent's uh-huh. beetle off the table. Or you can put a coffin out and use the coffin to try and catch pieces. But if you don't catch anything, then you have to give some pieces to your opponent and stuff. So Kabuto Sumo is quite a lot of fun. I enjoyed that. I was playing In Too Deep earlier this week, and that's uh-huh. a very cool game but quite a weird one, and a weird one in that it uses strange language for everything. So it takes a little bit of a while to go, hold on, hold on. And it's it's actually quite a simple game, but it just doesn't feel simple. But that was good. But that was, yeah, I think that's probably everything I've been playing really since last weekend. Uh, and, and they're sort of phenomenal. Uh, In Too Deep was a really, really, really good game, actually. That's one I'll have to bring over to Board in the West at some point. But yeah, it's been not a heavy week of board gaming this week. So we should actually get to the game that we are going to be talking about this week. Chris, tell us all about The Lost Ruins of Arnak. So that gives us the title of the game we're talking about. We're talking about a game about adventuring in the jungle. There's intrepid archaeological researchers who come across mythical beasts on a journey to try and find out the secrets of the Lost Ruins of Arnak. You're trying to get forward to the temple in the distance in a beautiful, beautiful kind of a Central American style landscape, pushing through, using your resources, your agility, your guile to get to the destination and earn victory points, of course. Because Lost Ruins of Arnak is a Euro game. It's a pure 100% Euro game set in an Indiana Jones type universe of adventuring and daring do. And what you're doing throughout this game is you are effectively building up resources and so forth, placing workers because it's half a worker placement game and using your deck because it's half a deck building game in order to be able to advance through the jungle and advance along a research track. And the research track is basically about your expertise as you're journeying towards the temple. And as you advance through the jungle, gets you closer and closer to bigger rewards that give you greater levels of understanding. So the way Arnak works, and what is quite exciting about Arnak, or was um, a big thing when it came out, is that it's a worker placement game, but it hasn't got very many workers. It's tight, only gives you two, unless you're the captain in the expansion, in which case you get three. But the captain's also got some like really unsettling extra fear that makes him more nervous, so he has to pay for his third worker. 
it also gives you a deck building, but your deck is also really small and it's a little bit tight. So you end up with this tiny little deck and you've got to manage your tiny little deck very carefully because you're only going to get five rounds worth to use these things to do stuff. But because you've got worker placement with not many workers and deck building and playing a hand with not much of a deck, when you add these two things together, you do get a decent turn because you're doing a little bit of both. So you go through the game, you play cards, you collect items and artifacts to build up your deck. You try and get fear cards out of your deck because apart from walking, they don't let you do anything else. You place your workers to try and explore and take on these guardians and you advance up the research track. And the research track is not to be underestimated because the research track is usually the thing which if you ignore, because you go, oh God, it's a track, it's boring, I want to excite monsters, then you will lose. Because Arnak fundamentally is about academically discovering the secrets of the Lost Ruins in Arnak. All of this stuff is in aid of your research, which is what many people would argue Indiana Jones should have been doing (laughs) if he was going to be able to sustain a career in a university rather than what he was doing, where he proceeded to lose every carved fact that he found, or at best, hid it in a cupboard somewhere in the back ends of the museum where nobody was ever going to see it again. So I don't know if that helps, but that's an explanation of The Lost Ruins of Arnak. And it is a game I think we've, we've all played. The first time I actually played Lost Ruins of Arnak was not the physical copy. It was the online version on, was it Board Game Arena we were playing on, Bonnie? Yeah, so I didn't play a physical copy of Lost Ruins of Arnak, even though I had a copy for probably 18 months after I actually got it because I'm sure we've mentioned this before on the podcast, but during lockdown... We had a group of us that were consistently catching up probably every second Saturday night online to play board games. And Bonnie was a part of that. And we used to play The Lost Ruins of Arnak quite frequently. And I actually find it one of those games that's a lot easier to play online where everything's already set up for you and it automatically tracks everything. Whereas Mm. playing it in person, there's so many little moving bits and so many different things to set up that I actually find it a lot harder to keep a track of. Bonnie, obviously you played it online with Jen. Do you you find the same thing? Absolutely. There's a lot of games like that that are just as good and enjoyable in person as they are online, but in terms of setup and perhaps management throughout the game, uh, like I don't even own Potion Permit, but I've played it online so many times, but the setup is, (laughs) it's a lot. (laughs) So... Uh, Lost Ruins of Arnak, if you haven't tried it online, give it a go. If you did try it in person and then you decided that it was just a lot of game, try it online, you might actually like it a little bit better. But, I mean, that being said, I do I do like playing it in person as well. How about you, Chris? The first time you played it, was it in person or online? So I've only played it in person because I'm not really big on playing board games online outside of chess and so the the first time i played it though was the solo mode for much the same reason as the first time you played it was online it was in the middle of lockdown and then i managed to play it sort of a couple of times between escapes and my first reactions to Arnak were that i actually didn't like it very much i found it quite kind of clunky And the couple of things that frustrated me, one was just the amount of space it takes up. Now, that's something we'll come back to, because in terms of unrealistic tables um, and the way that it's laid out, 
there are some disadvantages with how the board's laid out. I can understand why it is as it is, because it looks amazing, actually, when you see it. But there are some ways it can be quite cumbersome. But the other thing is that I got really excited by the theme because I'm really into like the old Indiana Jones movies. I actually really like the new Indiana Jones movie. And yes, I think that the ending is great. So all you people <laughs> that don't like the ending, you're wrong. I'm right. It's great. And more than that, I think the refrigerator scene in the fourth is one of the greatest scenes in cinema ever. And I will not hear any different. Aside <laughs> from all of that, right? And maybe this one, it didn't initially give me that feel of something that represented that kind of thing that you get from watching an Indiana Jones movie or playing an Uncharted game. It felt like a straightforward Euro resource trading game and didn't have that. I then found that with multiple plays, it grew on me as a game mm. because I got over that. Right? And I found, I thought, well, the game under here is quite good. It's a shame about the fact that I don't feel the theme quite adds up. And then the expansion came out, which with the Expedition Leaders expansion, because there's a couple now, there's another one called Missing Expedition, which I think had some campaign elements. But the Expedition Leaders expansion adds some asymmetric players and a couple of new research tracks and a few little uh, sort of tweaks to the game. Those additional characters start to make the game feel more thematic and they add a lot more sort of color and interest to the game. It becomes a lot less dry. Um, Some of them are quite wacky. Some of them are quite simple. And to me, they took a game from one that I was going to say, oof, you know what, I might sell this to a game that actually I've got a lot of time for now and I really enjoy playing, but I won't play without those extra characters uh, Mm because I think they're absolutely fantastic. The first experience though I had with Armac, and I'm going to caveat this to say that I bought it from our local game store. While we'd just moved to Australia and we were living in temporary accommodation, we didn't have any of our normal furniture. So I had this little coffee table that I could play games on. And I'd been in the middle of playtesting a couple of things because I did quite a lot of playtesting and they were a bit easier because they were all print and play. And the um, I had gone out, lost room to Barnack, and I thought, I'm excited by this because the Indiana Jones theme, all of that stuff, and attempted to fit the board on this coffee table. <laughs> Never going to happen. <laughs> just... So you get the board out and you think this is big and this is fine. And then there's this little add-on. Mm-hmm. Right? And the add-on has spaces for you to pour out all your bits Mm-hmm. which when we spoke to Karen, remember that it's, I mean, I'll take actually your, your video is funny as well because we had a bit of a conversation with Karen right at the end of a podcast. It was past talk about Agricola. We actually talked about it in relation to Le Havre. Um, yeah. And we were talking about the act of pouring out a pile of little bits into a pile on a board so that they're an absolute pain in the neck to clear up. And she went, I like those piles of bits. Huh. What's your what's your pre- what's your preference? Do you like a big pile of no. components strewn out all over this, or do you like them in pots, neatly arranged? Pots, neatly arranged, pre- preferably straight from the box yeah. to the table, so you don't have to <laughs> manage anything. That's like we were saying; it's easier online. That's one of the reasons. Yeah, one hundred percent. Rod and I actually to... have. Oh no, go ahead, yeah. Bonnie. I was saying, going back to the theme and the Indiana Jones feel, if your expectation was that adventurousness um have you played fireball islands because i think jen owns that but that has that indiana jones running through things but i love the theming of arnak it's not like you say i guess as adventurous as indiana jones himself but the exploration feel and the beautiful art is really fun it actually wasn't till you mentioned it chris that i even thought about the connection with indiana jones and 
Yeah, like I I agree with you. It doesn't really have that Indiana Jones feel. I come from a different angle because one of my best friends is an archaeologist and she used to always get lots of questions like, oh, do you wear like tidy shorts and little blue tank tops? And she's like, I am not Lara Croft. I spend a lot of time with cows. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of time digging around in shit and she actually ended up doing her doctorate in ancient languages at Enbury University and I'm really surprised that I've never actually played this game with her because she also does love board games. So I will have to now play with Siobhan so that she's uh, had a chance to play a, a copy of this because I think she would love it as a game because it doesn't have that much of the Indiana Jones feel. But, yeah, we will definitely bring Fireball Island to Board in the West so you can have a go at that because, or even Board in the East maybe because we now have a new game uh, event happening out east on the third Friday of every month at the Amaru Community Centre, don't we, Chris? We have, yeah. It'll be the first one will be on the 21st July. Timing-wise, I'm trying to think where that will sit in terms of when we actually put this podcast live. So my guess is that we will have just had Board in the East the Friday just been. (laughs) But because obviously we're in this magical world where we're recording podcasts reasonably in advance, that's going to have just been. So you probably have to wait to the next podcast to hear how that's been. But Fireball Island, I would love to play. And that's because that's one of those restoration games. It's based on an old game that was around, you know, a couple of years ago when when we were kids. But it's not one I played back in the day. And I've almost bought it a few times. And I saw it on your shelf, Jen, actually. And I would love to play that. I think the other game that has um, that Indiana Jones theme, which I haven't played, and I, you can't get a copy for love nor money. I did almost pay over the odds for one the other week. And then I thought, I'm not doing that. I'll, I'll wait and see if they reprint it. It's Fortune and Glory, oh, yeah. which comes in this ridiculously long box. But that's a, that's a flying frog game. And Flying Frog Games are the uh, the one game company who are adamantly holding on to the idea that they're going to play, do roll and move games, <laughs> you know, old school kind of adventure yeah. games in that sense, and they're not ashamed of it. They even have their online conventions, and they're called something like Roll and Move 2023 and something like that, or Roll <laughs> to Move, as they put it. They're fighting for old school ones, but Fortune and Glory is almost impossible to get now. And when it is around, it's not that expensive, so I keep waiting. But with Arnak, I found the exact opposite thematically, as I have of a whole load of other games. So quite often there's a game, strong theme. And I don't know whether or not you sort of notice this yourselves, but the um, I found that when you play a game that's very thematic and then you play that game again and you play that game again, what can happen is after a while the theme starts to dissolve because you start yeah. doing all these actions because it's like this is in the theme and it's in the spirit of it. Then after a while you start calculating how you're going to win. And yeah. the theme disappears and it evaporates and you end up just playing the technical game. And then it's like, well, okay, I like the game. If the game's good enough, it'll stick around. But if it wasn't quite good enough and the theme was carrying it, that's when the game ends up staying on a shelf and not coming out. With Arnak, I found that I couldn't really see the theme at all to start with. But actually, as I started respecting it a bit more as a game, I found that that seemed to come back because the cards themselves rather than just looking at what icons they had on them but yes you started getting to the flow of it and thinking right except this isn't the indiana jones game or whatever i then start thinking all right cool well i've picked up the the, the tent or the weird crossbow or the kind of a you know one of one of the the, the strange sort of artifacts and ideas because they have got some really sort of creative things that are in there and the design is great and the art is fantastic and yeah. so it 
it starts to come back. And that's almost like feels a little backwards. And there was another game I was playing where I felt that recently, and I can't remember what it was, where I felt that the theme seemed to grow as you got used to the game rather mm-hmm. than the theme seemed to recede. If that keeps happening with Arnak, then that is actually going to give it quite a lot of staying power. I quite like that. That's great. I actually, I think because I played it online the first time and I wasn't touching sort of the little physical bits, um, the first time I did play it in person, and when I say I prefer to play it online rather than in person, I actually do still really enjoy playing it in person. But touching all the little bits and having all the little pieces that actually sort of look like, you know, the the little gem and the little arrowhead and the little scrolls and the compasses, I think for me that brings the theme a lot more into it, playing it in person, whereas I do find it is more sort of how can you race up the side of the board the fastest way possible online. (laughs) And, look, to be honest, that really speaks to my soul in terms of how can I I win, (laughs) which... (laughs) I guess before we get on to uh, that part of our conversation, now for a word from our sponsors. The royal footman walked with purpose towards the door of the manor, his tricone hat perfectly poised atop the powdered silver wig, while a snug green velvet frock coat adorned his slim form. I heard the loud thump on the door, a smile curling my lips in anticipation as I looked around the morning room at my sisters. A small fire crackled in the marble fireplace, tea and scones spread across the ornate wooden side table as a pack of cards lay spread across the playing table in front of us. What could this be? proclaimed my sister. No royal wedding was anticipated, no heir to the throne. Moments later, we all rushed to the parlour door, crowding around, pressing our ears to the pale blue painted wood. Good morning, sir, rang the voice of our butler Bromley. How may I be of assistance? I come bearing an invitation for the ladies of the house, good sir, proclaimed the voice of the handsome footman. The Queen wishes to invite all ladies of the realm to a day of frivolity at the palace. Tea and scones will be provided, along with a selection of delightful games arranged for all. The Queen wishes it known that all ladies are welcome. She wishes none to be excluded and has decided to proclaim this new endeavour the Devonshire Society. Light gasps of delight filled the room with joy, for while we all enjoyed our own company, We also basked in the idea of an excuse to meet some new ladies and an opportunity to do so in the safety of feminine company is always welcome. Please join us for the return of our ladies game day, the Devonshire Society. All people who identify as femme are welcome. We'd love to see you at the Boyd Community Hub in South Bank. Please check our Facebook page for event times and details. The cost is $10 per head, which includes scones, jam and cream, and hot drinks. We look forward to seeing you all there. Please do contact us if you do have any questions. That's the Boyd Community Hub in South Bank, and please do check our Facebook page for details. Welcome back. And I was just going to observe, I mean, some of the things about the components in Arnak is that they do feel really thematic. And I know that was part of that thing, how thematic is the game, how beautiful they are. But one of the uh, things that I haven't done yet is to put some ink. I don't know if you've seen a lot of people have taken those little tablets and they've just run some ink wash on them. 
so that you can see them. And then they look oh. absolutely fantastic. And I've seen that Ooh, done a couple of times. And that might take, I think, all of about 15 minutes to do. So it's one of the things which actually, when I got the box out before this podcast to have a look at the game again and have a look at it, I thought, right, I'm going to commit to before I put the game back in the box doing that. But it was one of the most ridiculously blinged out sort of Etsy sets of components I've seen have been for this game. It's the second most. The first most blingy, ridiculous component I've seen is for my father's work, but I'm sure there's worse. But is the little compasses. Have we, has anyone seen the little compasses that you can get? No. Uh, which actually have little swivelly compass styles. No in them. way. <laughs> and, you, and quite a lot of them, because it's not. this isn't something where there's only like two or three of them in the game. It's like, mm, like I'm are... just a pilot resource. Yes, so you can get blinged out compass resources for this game. They're plastic, but they've got like a just a little twirly Cute. thing in the middle. And whether or not it's magnetised, I don't know. If they were actual real little compasses, that would be so freaking cool. I guess one of the other things is about how accessible this game is and, and how sort of well-designed it is. And I've, there's, always, there's two different ways we can play that. I think one is the typical way in terms of how accessible it is to different types of gamers. And I think we could come to that first. The next one, I think, comes back to what particularly heinous crime is done in terms of how accessible is it for your table. Um, mm. So I guess on first angle... Um, Jen Bonnie, how do you feel, or how playable do you feel that Lost Ruins of Arnak is for sort of like a, a wide variety of sort of gamers? Is it easy to understand? Easy to see? Is the board well designed? It's a fantastic game for gamers. I would not start use this as a starting game for my non-gaming co-workers and friends. Because if I'm going to teach them that many different mechanics and elements like deck building and word worker placement, I'd rather do a game that just does that, just does worker placement. They get, they understand that grocks the, how that works and then bring them to Lost Ruins. But it's definitely a game that has fantastic replayability, would hit the table a lot and does because it's beautiful and fun and only takes, you know, about an hour to play. It's a really good one. I think in terms of playability, I definitely say it's an intermediate level game. Like it's it's not really I'd call something like Twilight Imperium or Terraforming Mars a very advanced level game because there's a lot of moving parts and you really have to know the game well before you can actually really get in and you know, if you're particularly wanting to just win the game. Those kind of games are very advanced. I'd say this one probably after a couple of turns, you really get the idea of what's going on and still have the opportunity at that point that you're not going to be far enough behind that even playing this game for the first time, you could potentially win it. So it does have a lot of little moving parts. It does have a lot of different ways that you can play it, but that also means it has a lot of ways you can win it. So I think there is a very, very good player guide for this game, which goes through and talks about lots of different things that you can do on your turn, what effects everything has. The rule book does have a very good explanation guide for every single card. Every single card in the game is very well written so that you really understand what effect it actually has. I think my one my one little complaint about the game is that 
and I think this comes back to a playing it online versus playing it in person. There are some of the rules online that I don't think have been quite properly programmed in and have on a couple of occasions when we have played screwed me over big time <laughs> because <laughs> I've gone to play cards in a certain way and gone here is exactly how this card is meant to be played and have played that move in person but then online it didn't translate properly or it went you can't do that and then just moved on to the next player and essentially skipped my turn that annoys the shit out of me but uh in terms of if you are somebody who is neurodiverse somebody who has uh color blindness problems um, even somebody with tactile problems, I actually think the parts are all fairly well-defined as being very different items. They're all quite easy to move and grab. I would say it's a very well-designed and very playable game, but definitely one to take slow with any people who are neurodiverse, that's for sure, because they may need a few extra minutes just to kind of grasp. There's so many options. Yeah, because there are so many options. It's definitely not a linear game, not by any means. It's it's one you really have to be very good at abstract thinking to to do well at this game. What about yourself, Chris? I'd agree that it's fantastically designed. And the player aid, just to sort of back that up even further, the expansion has a separate player aid for each of the different leaders all the different expedition leaders as well. And those are very good and very, very clear. So it's really, really, really easy to work out what it is that you have as the options that are available to you. It takes a little while to work out what everything does, but then that's also part of the fun of the game because that's part of puzzling out, learning how to play the game as you go. It's a game that can be a little punishing if a new player plays it with a more experienced player, not that it's one way you get easily annihilated or that you can make a really, really big mistake in your very first turn. But in terms of understanding just how many cards should you be trying to get into your deck, mm-hmm. that is a, a bigger question with this game. Because if you go for, sod it, I'm not going to really bother building my deck out at all and put nothing in it, then you'll find yourself strangled as you go towards the end of it. If you invest too much and you put too much into that, then you'll find that there's things that you can't afford to do uh, and that actually you've not made progress the other way. So those can sometimes leave you in a position where you can get halfway through the game and go, oh, crap, I've made a right mess of this, haven't I? So there is a bit of that. But I, I find it a fantastically designed game. There is only one major flaw with it, and this comes back to the old table thing, and that the shape of the, the game... board is huge. ...in this big, long rectangle. It's an absolutely massive board, and partly to deal with that, the bottom of the board, which shows kind of the ocean, which then gives way to the land, which gives way to the sky, right, as you see, as you go up towards the board. In the ocean, there are spaces marked out for you to put your components, and there are spaces marked out for you to put the tiles for the guardians and the exploration sites that you're going to use, and you can flip it over and get rid of those spaces, you can chuck those wherever you like. Now, this board is separate, which is a really good thing, because it means you can put it somewhere more convenient on the table, and therefore not have to have it where it is. However, also printed on the board is the starting spaces for your research track. Yes. Now, you don't have to put them on there. You could just put them under the board and shift the whole thing, but you can't hide them. And if you've got even the slightest bit of gamery OCD, 
the fact that you've got this board out somewhere that isn't on the bottom of the board and then you're shoving stuff underneath that just makes you go, Ugh! right? I have to say, I've never noticed a... it. So I don't know. It depends. Have you, do you always place the long, the blue bit of the board at the bottom of the board or do you sometimes put it out to the side? When was the last time we actually played it in person? Probably at a convention. Um, yeah. In which case we, ha- we have enough space then to put it at the bottom of the board. Yeah, because you'll go then sideways, so that the thing lies mm. sideways yep. in the middle of the table, so no one's looking at it upwards. Yeah. Well, the only other time I think we've played the game has been on my table, which we all know is enormous. Huge. So Huge. I don't think I've ever had a problem even fitting fully expanded Everdell on my table. So mm. that's literally the only, yeah, like I, I – I don't like that if somebody did have a smaller table, it would be very hard for you to place the board the way that it's designed. But it is also, I agree, it's good that you can sort of move it around. Um, Definitely a very good game there to play at conventions. So you'll find most gaming groups will have a copy of this because it was so popular when it came out a few years ago. So if you don't have a copy yourself and you do want to try it, get along to your nearest board gaming group, get along to your nearest convention, whichever one is the next coming up for you. And then I'm sure you'll be able to find a copy and give it a go. And it's well and truly worth it. And probably find yourself some people who have played it before, if it is your first time trying Arnak, and some people who are nice enough to teach you (laughs) and, uh, (laughs) Not use the opportunity just to win the game themselves is probably my advice because it definitely lends itself to a game where you probably want to play it. Like I like I said before, you could play it and within a couple of turns probably grasp enough that you could probably still do fairly well during a game. For myself, I know it's one of those games that I had to play it a couple of times before I really got the rhythm of what you need to do because there's all sorts of little moving components in it, like the little assistants. If you happen to grab an assistant that say, God, what do the assistants even do? They've got so many different things. An assistant that gives you an extra card, but then you grab cards to build your deck, which contradict what your assistant does. Like one of the, I know the big things that really helped me in getting quite good at playing Lost Ruins of Arnak was getting my assistant as quickly as possible and then buying cards that complemented that assistant and not bloating the deck out too much. So definitely if you've played a few times and you're still finding you're not quite grasping it, try that, try that method. It's worked pretty well for me in the past for actually getting somewhere with the game. But I do find it is a game that definitely requires a bit of technique and everybody seems to have their own technique as to how they play it. And what about yourself, Chris? What would you say is your technique for playing Lost Ruins of Arnak? What do you think is the winning method? I'm not entirely sure because I know that the the method that I was trying to avoid was just driving up the research track. And you can't not dive up the research track. And the easy way, if you want to basically say, right, okay, I just want to get to the point where I have a respectable score the first time I'm playing with it. I don't care about the game. I don't care about trying stuff. I just want to put a decent mark on the scoreboard. Trying to get yourself up the research track is probably the best tactic. That's the straight way. It's probably not the only way. And again, the thematic ties to it. 
uncovering the monsters, the guardians, the sites, the exploration bit. The way my head works is at the moment I see that, I want to do that bit instead. So my way of playing it is always focused on the exploration and then trying to get cards. And actually, I learn over time to try and pull more cards than I was before Mm -hmm. and not try and explore quite so fast, so so far. But the that exploration side, the tile revealing bit is the bit which I would always veer towards. And so my aim is to try and basically do as well as I can, emphasizing on the exploration rather than the research. But you have to do enough of both. Something that's cool in the expansion is that both of the alternate research tracks in the expansion allow you to get one of those temple tiles, those high scoring tiles at the top, a little bit earlier than the end of the track. So they actually make it possible when you've got that last turn, if you like, you know, you can't really do anything more. You just need points, right? You don't want any resources because you can't use them. You just need points. And if you're at the top of the research track, you can just go, give me points. But if you're not at the top of the research track, then you're like, oh, crap, I need another two turns to get points, and I've only got one left. Give me points. So that opportunity to be able to translate something into just some pure points without having to be quite at the end of it, that also, I feel, makes a bit of a difference because it balances out those options for how you handle that. There's also some cool stuff on the additional research tracks where there's like a monster that you can find halfway up the research track as well. So, you know, you're missing it, or like a secret item that you can reveal halfway at the research track. Again, trying to make that that part of the game, because it's quite important, feel that little bit more thematic. But one very last question before we get on to topic, and it's right, as um, general, Bonnie, have either of you played June Imperium? No. No. Because when, when Lost Ruins of Arnak came out, Obviously, we've been discussing it, and it is a worker placement game with not many workers and a deck building game where you're encouraged not to build that bigger deck. At the same time, Dune Imperium came out, which is a deck building game where you're encouraged not to build too big a deck that's also got a worker placement element with not many workers. <laughs> and probably that way around in terms of the, the emphasis of it. And they got really heavily compared. And you got, you know, June Imperium versus Lost Ruins of Arnak. And I dived out and got Lost Ruins of Arnak. So I'm like, well, I don't like June, as in the books. You know, I was never keen on those books as a kid. I read a bit of the first one. I didn't like it. So I thought, I don't don't like June. I'll get Lost Ruins of Arnak. Um, I then later played June Imperium, which I think is a phenomenal game. But they feel really different. And that's something mm-hmm. that we'll have to discuss on another uh, another game because they... Um, June Imperium, I mean, and it really, really is a phenomenal game. What caused me to go out and buy it was that I noticed who designed it, and it's the designer of Clank. And the way that Clank takes a deck building game and makes it feel like an explorative dungeon clawer, June Imperium takes a deck building game with a little bit of Lost Ruins of Arnak, and in my mind, possibly my mind only, it feels like Twilight Imperium or similar games, without being in the slightest bit like Twilight Imperium. Now, I know I'm going to experience Twilight <laughs> Imperium players, although you're factually wrong, but it feels like that, the way the game progresses, the way you go up the diplomacy, the way that combats work in the game. It's got that kind of epic feel, and yet it feels a bit like Clank, because it's got his mm-hmm. same kind of clanky rhythm in it. So at the time, when these two games came out, um, they were really heavily compared they feel really different, but they've got very similar mechanics. So if you're looking at Lost Ruins of Arnak and you haven't played that or you haven't played June Imperium and you're going, either you might be put off by the theme of Lost Ruins of Arnak where you're kind of thinking, oh, I like the idea of it. June Imperium is the other game that was in the zeitgeist at the same period. And I think people have stopped comparing them because they do feel so different. But at the time, 
it was one of these has got to kill the other. You'd like look at your YouTube reviews and everything like that, and they'd say, well, there's no point in buying both of these games. You know, which one are you going to pick? And there was a big fight going on between two of them, and they're both now established classics. So that's quite impressive for two games that were released slap bang in the middle of a pandemic. Nice. So with a steer into our topic, let's just rewind a little bit back into this podcast, because Jen, you were talking about all the things that you were doing, Lost Ruins of Arnak, in order to progress it and all the strategies you were trying to work out while you were trying to win. How intensely did you want to win? How intensely does winning <laughs> matter to you as a gamer? Uh, I love to win. <laughs> I love to win so much. And uh, this is definitely one of the reasons that we invited Bonnie to join us today as I sort of alluded to at the start of uh, our chat. Chris brought up a really awesome, awesome idea for us to talk about, which is competitive players versus non-competitive players. (laughs) And I think we've all very well established that I am most definitely a very competitive board game player. And I absolutely love to win and I absolutely love to learn the rules so I know exactly how I can do everything I need to do to get the highest score possible and have quite a bit of fun grumping about, oh, my God, it's stole my pace and that kind of thing. And <laughs> I hope all of my friends know me well enough by now to know I'm not actually really that upset. But no. it definitely, it, it for me definitely adds a lot to the game to, like, really be quite competitive and get in there and win everything. As and I've been the opposite. Funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Whereas I played for the journey, I do love to win but I don't care if I don't I enjoy everyone's experience of it and sometimes very often if I'm playing with a newbie I will intentionally lose so that they can hopefully enjoy it more (laughs) so yeah different opposite ends of the spectrum Arnak I feel Arnak is not as player involved you're not affecting each other as much as in some other games I'm not directly going out to steal at least when i play i'm not going out to steal your spot on the map to try and stop you doing something i usually at least how i play is to zone out what everyone else is doing because i'm so involved in everything that i'm trying to achieve and i am just an opportunistic player i don't focus on trying one particular strategy generally i want to just gather as many resources a variety of resources as i can so that when someone maybe goes to a location and they don't beat the the beast that they're trying to to beat then when they leave I can get in and beat it without it costing me as much to get there or oh it just so happens I have the right resources to go up the research track right now so I'll do it this turn it just fits and less people were doing it like different different styles what about yourself Chris I'm probably a little bit between you but I'm probably closer to Bonnie in uh, for me the journey's everything and it partly comes from being often the person around the table teaching a game uh, because in my life i've bought too many board games it's quite common that uh, that i'm the person that knows how to play something i was played it was brought a copy of it so i'll often be doing that and teaching sort of newer players so the same thing applies uh, that, that bonnie just said which is that i won't want to be playing particularly outright competitively but i have to admit the journey is often more interesting And that's still competitive because you're still trying to get as many points as you can, but you're often trying to work out how to do that within the context of the game. I don't mind games that are fiercely competitive player to player when they're party games 
or when they're kind of really short, sharp games uh, that, you know, go over in sort of 15, 20 minutes. But often on a board game, I'm looking for something where there's always options and there's different directions. And you can say, well, okay, I'm going to take a strategy. I might carve out a different space, but every possible approach could win. And it might come out and you'll find out at the end how that goes. Uh, And so I don't get fired up by, right, I can see that Bob's doing really, really, really well there. He's, he's close to it. If I can just undermine Bob, if I can block him, then Bob will get stuck. <laughs> Bob will get stuck behind that thing. I can whistle past Bob on the victory point track. I can lap him to the... And he'll be sat there hiding in the corner because I know that Bob's the person I've got to compete against. Because sometimes that's the other thing, isn't it, Do you know? It's very important to know, or if you can, know the players that you're playing with because I have sat in games where there were opportunities to be that... Um, mean, I guess you could say, Um, (laughs) mean to the other players and you're focused more on stopping them. And in a table of of four players, we've all been affronted by that one player that was playing aggressively. They weren't, in our opinion, playing the game. They were just playing to stop us from playing. But that is a strategy. (laughs) I'm definitely not. I'm not that kind of competitive player. I'm the kind of competitive player that I want to win based on the things that I do during the game that I've thought through and worked out how to play the game in a way that I'm going to win, which is probably one of the reasons I love Ticket to Ride so much because I know exactly how to make every different version of Ticket to Ride to get as many points as possible. Like I, I've just played it that much now that I know exactly what my strategy is and if somebody overlaps that, how to overcome, you know, somebody overlapping that part of the track and me going, crap, I can't do that anymore. So I love to win for the satisfaction of knowing that, you know, I've I've worked it out and I've got that down pat and I have that knowledge not as much as a, ha-ha, I beat you and you suck. Like, it's I'm not that kind of player. <laughs> like, if I'm playing with new people as well, like, I'll absolutely spend the time to say to people, hey, you know, I understand why you're doing it that way. You know, would you mind if I gave you a suggestion for a way that you could do something that would actually give you more points? So I will sabotage myself in terms of, you know, if I'm teaching people a game to say, hey, you know, here's another option that you may not have thought of just putting it out there for you unless we all agree at the start of the game. And this is something I've done. We're playing with friends and I've been like, guys, I'm in a really competitive mode today. How do we all feel about just going out there and being really competitive or saying to people like when we were playing Clank Legacy, for example, we'd all made the arrangement. We were going to play Clank Legacy cooperatively. So when one person starts playing competitively, that sucks and it sucks so, so bad. But I definitely only play competitively to sort of win the game and beat myself, but not at the expense of other people. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. That whole thing about how you play Clank Legacy was an interesting one because I had that conversation without me prompting it with um, with on another video that I was filming uh, with, with a game designer the other week, which I'm not going to say here because it's not out yet. I'll publish it yet, but the... Um, on that video, he'd said exactly the same thing, that effectively he thought then about Clank as being kind of a game which had that sort of cooperative aspect to it on the Legacy Edition. And that that cooperative part of it really, really mattered because of the way the game is pitched. And I think that's to do with it being sort of a legacy game. But one of the things which I guess I find about some of those games is that 
like Ticket to Ride is a, by design, is a game with quite a competitive streak to it. It's a game where you can actively go and, and put in quite a lot of Scrooge, but you won't necessarily see that when people have played it once, twice, three or four times. It, it comes up as people get a little bit better at it because then they yeah. know what to do uh, because you don't know where everyone's going. After a while, if people have learned what the big ticket routes are, they know what the big ticket routes are. So after, after a while, if they can work out where everyone's going to, they could explicitly try and screw them over because they know exactly what tickets are available. Things look at other classic games that are old school, like Carcassonne. Carcassonne is, is 100% a game in which you can really screw people over, but you have to know how to do it. The first few times you play it, you know, you wouldn't learn that. And there's loads of those old school Euros which have lasted and perhaps have lasted in, into tournaments and sort of competition play a little bit. And that's more with something like Carcassonne maybe than with Ticket to Ride. But, the, uh, but you get those old games. Do you think that competitiveness, the fact that they can get cutthroat, has in any way meant that they've lasted longer and become kind of evergreen games? Or is it just literally that everyone's rediscovering and there's a continuous set of people discovering that initial experience, which is simple and fun and easy to get into? What are your thoughts, Bonnie? I don't know that I own a game that has been played that many times to count. Um, unfortunately, we don't, or maybe it's a good thing, we play different games. Um, and it takes a long time. To, uh, a lot of cons- like a lot of playing, also regular playing, because if you haven't played a game for a year, you've forgotten how to play, you're almost starting out again. Uh, yeah, that's never been my experience just because we've never played a game that that many times, the same one. Bonnie, do you think that actually makes it impossible to be the competitive gamer? Because I have exactly the same thing. I have so many games, you just don't ever play one of them that many times. Do you think that that's it? You can't? I think I've done what you've done in that I've joined tables at conventions or at game nights where other people do that. They play this one game and this is what they always play. So like Karen, if you sit down and play a game with her and, it, and it's going to be a Grekula, then she's probably going to win. But you accept that going into it. So I've, I've had that experience at other people's tables. It's never likely to happen at mine. I definitely think that for me, Ticket to Ride is probably one of my favourite games because it's a really great game to bring people into games that are a little bit different. So if you, you know, you meet someone that says, oh, I love board games. I've played Monopoly and Yahtzee and chess. And you're like, okay, let me show you a proper board game, <laughs> you know, and Ticket to Ride, I very much use as an introductory game for people because there's really only three things that you can do. You can either play strains, buy tickets or buy trains, you know, and because it's got those really easy components in terms of, yes, it's different to your standard toy shop games it's a really good way of showing people a different style that is very very fun where it doesn't have to be super competitive but it can be if you want to that being said it is definitely a game that I would never ever ever play on a competition level ever I know there are tournaments all over the world for people playing Ticket to Ride and I know a majority of people that go to those tournaments to play Ticket to Ride, their main strategy is to block other people and it's not how I like to play at all. So definitely as much as I'm a very competitive player and I love to win, I hate to win at the expense of screwing other people over. I just won't do it. I won't do it at all. If I have to win 
by screwing somebody else over, I don't take that as a win. I take that as you didn't strategize properly yourself. But I agree with Chris that there's a place for that in party games. I, I do love to do that in party games, but it's a totally different scenario. <laughs> yes. Because one of my favorite party games is a game called Halapagus, which often says is like the simplest rules of any semi-cooperative game in the world, because fundamentally it's like you just choose whether you're going to go and salvage wreckage from the yacht, you're going to go out and get some food, you're going to go out and build a raft because you're all trying to get off this desert island. But the actual game is effectively when you can't get everyone fed at the end of each day before the hurricane arrives, you've all got to decide who's going to get eaten. And uh, or who gets buried <laughs> off to, uh, to to not be there? I'll and have to try this. They may have they may have snuck off and basically like got some cards from the wreck, which may have like a gun hidden in there. And so they say, "I've got a gun. If you try and eat me, I can shoot you." Uh, and then it'd be like, "Well, do we believe them?" Because you'll have votes to try and see who gets in there. And you know, if you vote the wrong person, then you're going to be out. And it's to be honest, it has hardly any rules at all. Really, it's a game. It, the, the entire game is basically uh, waiting until you get to the point where somebody has to get eaten, and then you're all debating who's going to get eaten. And it's great fun, <laughs> and that obviously is vicious. And it's been already gone for twenty minutes, and I've never played it without it going on for over an hour, just because everyone gets really into it. But that's a completely different thing, right? And I, because yeah. you don't have, I think, the thing that was described earlier, which is that thing where you realise in a game that you've lost three or four moves into the game. Yep. And then it's like, ah, oh, well, now you have learned for next time, young Padawan. You will grow <laughs> wiser and stronger through being defeated and defeated repeatedly. It's the kind of the influence of, it's not really the influence of the games like sort of Dark Souls video games and stuff like that, which have taken over video games. And that's a nightmare for like an old fart like me. <laughs> you know, you're playing video games and suddenly it's like all the popular video games. It's like we've removed the option to save your progress and we've made <laughs> it really hard so you actually have to get good at it. And it's like, oh. Well, yeah, maybe no. when I was 20, I had time to do that. It's like, you know, when you've <laughs> right? got like a job and stuff, you've got to sort of go through and actually sort of work a living. Then chances are you're going to get a bit rusty and you're going to get rusty as you get older. So that sort of thing where it's a bit masochistic, I didn't like. And, and there's, um, I was playing Barrage about a year ago because I got introduced to Barrage and I kind of begrudgingly went, you know what? I've not played it. I'll try it. And respectfully, I can see that it's a great game. In Barrage, I think it took about four turns to realize that I couldn't, come close to winning in this three and a half hour game. And about halfway through, I thought, well, at least I can build this one thing, spent ages building this one thing, and then somebody else put something in the middle of it, blocking it, and it, the entire thing became completely pointless. Yeah. And then I wasted even that. And it's like you're looking at this and going, I can see that there is a massive amount of like skill in this game. I can see that it's, you know, that it's very well designed. And that kind of take that in this does fit the theme of the game the art of the game it, it's entirely in keeping with it i don't ever want to play it again now it's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like it was like no that wasn't that wasn't actually fun it was educational mm. right and great to have played it because it means that yeah. you know i can i can reflect on it but not your style no not at all there's there's a particular school of designers um often from italy and i don't know if it's an italian thing because <laughs> even like smaller games like you know citadels Mm-hmm. Citadels, Citadels. which is a right now citadels is more like a party game right but that's an italian design party game and it's again it's the same thing the emphasis in citadels is basically screwing other people over that's what the <laughs> whole game's about so there's almost like an italian school that has spread from games like that into like the bigger sort of border games by by some of the more famous sort of italian euro designers which really do go into that kind of get it right or bleh. do you know all of that being said I actually think one of my favorite party games is Say Anything, which is completely cooperative. 
you know, <laughs> like it's it's entirely based around knowing the people that you're playing with or hoping that you can guess what other people that you're playing with are going to write as a clue so that you don't overlap as much as possible so that you can all give as many clues as possible. And that's like 100% cooperative. But even then I've seen people play say anything in a way that was like, no, I don't want that player to be able to guess. So I'm going to write something that's really obvious, which hopefully everybody else will write as well. So I think no matter what kind of game you're playing, you're always going to come across some players who are just in it because they're, I don't know, they get some kind of adrenaline rush from winning at the expense of others. And I guess the lesson in that is sort of if that's how you're playing, maybe look at how many people play with you again? <laughs> you know, like oh, how many times do you? It's just a place. Play with similar yeah, minded. Yeah. yeah. Play with other players who are also after that competition. Because obviously if you get really yeah, good at a yes. game, you've got a favourite game and you do get, then actually you can get to the point where you you need to play with players that are also that good at the game in order that's for the right. game to still be a challenge and interesting. And you know, that's that's fine if you get really, really interested in something. If you, you, you then play different games in different environments. But have you ever had I almost think this is worse. You know when you have somebody who's relentlessly competitive in a co-op game? And you're yeah. playing in a group because they're the person who goes, "Why did you do that? Oh, mm. you stupid little! You are why, why, yeah. you know, <laughs> if, if you should have done this, 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 and this, look, you, look, we're, we're going to get eaten by the goblin now, and it'll be all your. Oh Christ! Look, we can't do that. Look, look, you need to do something to alleviate that. You need to, you know. They might as well be playing on their own. That person is like even worse because <laughs> they're sitting in the corner getting agitated that we're going to lose. My my son, bless him, was a little bit like this when we were first playing Pandemic <laughs> because he'd get really into it. But I mean, when, when you've got like a, a sort of nine-year-old, eight-year-old kid yeah. or whatever it is, you know, because it was years that's ago when we first different. playing Pandemic, that's fine, right? You know, kind of just yeah. get into the theme, you're pumped up. Um, but that can be exhausting. I've not had it often, but there's been a couple of times playing a co-op game where that person's there and it's just like kind of going... It's a game. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it is just a game. We've had that. I bought a game for Rod that he was super, super excited to play. I'm not going to give too much detail because I don't want to sort of throw anyone under the bus. Um, but the very first time we played it, we weren't very careful about the people that we picked to play it with. And one of the people kept on saying the whole way through the game, and we'd never played with them before. But they kept on saying the whole way through the game, why did you do that? But you could have done this. Oh, you must be the traitor or something like that. And it just, it made a game that was meant to take an hour and a half, take up to six hours because every single thing that every person did got questioned. And I swore I would never, ever play board games with that person ever again. (laughs) And I have never played board games with them ever again, just because it was such a bad experience. And I like, I I don't mind if it's, you know, if it's a nine-year-old kid going, but why would you do that? Cool. No problem. But when it's a grown adult and the whole MO is just, I'm going to call you out and just make everybody, you know, make everything take twice as long because I've got to prove that, you know, I know who the traders are like that. That just pisses me off. What What are my favourite rules in a game? And I'm not sure I've ever seen it used. I don't know if it ever gets used. Most people already don't even know it's there. Uh, but it's the principle of it is in Scythe. And I don't know if you've ever noticed, but in Scythe, there is a rule that says that if you catch another player trying to work out 
how close somebody else's is to winning and how many points they're likely to make at the end of the game, then collectively they can be docked and fined in game <laughs> currency and have to pay the other players oh, <laughs> like just a token that. coin never... or whatever it is for doing so mm. and i'm sure most people just see it and ignore it and think of it as a joke and hopefully that doesn't actually happen but there's a principle behind that because um the whole point is just to focus on the journey mm-hmm. and scythe is a race game you're racing to get you know your first six stars and the, the, the new scythe expedition is a completely different game but that's still a race game you're racing to get four stars and then you'll work out how many points you get and in fact Viticulture, like Jamie said, my game before that is really a race game as well, uh, hard. but the the process as you're going through that is that you shouldn't be able to see exactly when someone's going to cross the line. It shouldn't be obvious if you're really dramatically losing. And that's one of those key things that the Eurogame Zone has really put a lot into, isn't it? It's that they want to have enough mechanisms that there's loads of routes to victory, but also that if you're not going to win, or in fact, if you're going to come like quite badly behind, at least you'll only really know that at the end. Right, you get to enjoy the journey and try want to do what you're doing the whole way through, so everybody gets a good experience throughout the whole game. I think you know if a game has been designed very well or it's a very tightly designed game that in almost all the games of Arnak that I've played, the difference in points has not been that great a difference. Like if there's absolutely ten twenty point, I don't even think we've had a twenty point difference. Like it's very no. tight and close. So that's another reason you can't really guess who's going to win because it comes down to that final scoring. And that's, I think, one of the strategies to designing a game where you can't tell is there's a combination of in-game points and a combination of end-game points. I actually think that's one of the reasons I quite like Ticket to Ride as well because there are so many hidden components, like because you don't tell people what tickets you've got and you could just be randomly building anywhere to sort of mess everybody else up and not telling everybody that you're doing that. There are definitely a lot of ways in which anybody could be winning with Ticket to Ride and it's not right until the end of the game that you really go, oh, okay, that person's won. Once you've actually gone through and revealed what all your tickets are, how many did you actually finish? So... I think that's another component I like of that. But I I agree with you. I think Arnak is very well designed because there are so many things like, did you buy cards that have a point value? When you've defeated the monsters, did you actually keep your totem or did you spend your totem for extra resources? There are so many different little strategies that can get you extra points with Arnak. It's such a well-designed game. It really is. It's very, very tightly designed. You can kind of see that they know the maths anyway of it. That's right. If it had one thing that I might change, and I might try this in a home brew game sometime, is to give myself an extra round or two. <laughs> in every game I've played, I've gone, no, why are we at the end already? Oh, that that's a thing, isn't it? In so many games that there's this thing about not giving you quite enough time. And that is yes. a... It's a double-edged sword because the idea is, is that you don't outstay your welcome, right? And it yeah. would make Arnak a longer game, right? You know, you True. have the extra round, Absolutely. people have got more cards, more turns, you know, make it quite a lot longer game. Yeah. And the and trying to get that sort of tension that says, right, okay, you're almost there, but you can't quite do everything. And it takes some of the tension out when you have games that do have like short mode and long mode where they had like an extra round. But at yeah. the same point, that's that's kind of, it's, it's true, isn't it? You feel like you can just not quite 
got there. And mm. I think there's other games that have that sort of more sprawling, so you can try and do everything. And maybe that's just a different game. But that was one of the things that I felt was weird about Arnak thematically again, because I came to it with theme of those kind of like stories, which are pretty sprawling in yeah. themselves, and they don't have that. So yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. It's it would be a tough thing to make make work. I mean, one um, one game. Have you played Jenna? No, you haven't, Bonnie. Have you played Tapestry? Yeah. Right. So I don't know. There's Tapestry. Uh, there's been gazillion games recorded of it because the Jamie Stegmaier is always capturing stats uh, from people reporting how they've managed to get various scores with various civilizations. Because there's so many civilizations in Tapestry that it started off relatively well balanced, and then an expansion came out and it got slightly less well-balanced. And then the expansion came out and it got less well-balanced. It became a better game every time. And then the most recent expansions come out. They've now, they originally not printed enough, like, boxes on the side of the scoreboard. So you have a victory point track, you go up to 100, and then you've got yep. a place you can put a cube for if you've got 100, 200, 300. When they were playtesting the game, because I was one of the original playtesters, they didn't have enough of those on the board because Jamie never uh-huh. thought they'd get above that. Then a couple of the playtesters... <laughs> managed to beat the, the highest score, so they had to put an extra 100 wow. block on it. That's been beaten now twice. <gasps> no. You need another two. <laughs> there are people getting scores of almost 600 points in Tapestry. Wow. But, and it comes out of freaky combos. And they're trying to work out how to balance it, and then they're going to reissue some like SIG cards to try and rebalance it a bit. But it's never going to be properly balanced, because every now and again, somebody will end up with some sort of combo where they end up doing something ridiculously right. silly. For some reason in that game, it's kind of okay. It just ends yes. up being quite funny. It is. It's kind of um, the outsider. You don't always have it happen, but when it does, you're all so impressed that you don't really care. It's just amazing that they were able to achieve it. I'm quite excited by that. <laughs> Definitely a game I'd love to try. So you know what we're talking about being disappointed with Arnett because it didn't feel like Indiana Jones. When Tapestry was originally advertised, it was advertised as a civilization game. And it was Jamie Stegmeyer's making a civilization game, and he just made Scythe, which obviously was like a Euro game, but it had like mechs and war and stuff in it. So there was a whole part of the board game market that really wanted a meaty civilization game, i.e., you know, like a sort of forex mm. conquer the world type yeah. game, which Tapestry isn't that game. <laughs> it no. just isn't that game no. at all. And they were pissed off <laughs> to start with. They had exactly that thing where it was just like, this is not a civilization game. <laughs> don't like it. Tapestry does have that competitive streak. And in Tapestry, you are seeing the points accumulate as you play. So you can yeah. kind of see if you're being completely outdone. But in general, it's right at the end of the game where any That's of right. those really, really, really big booming combos come in. So in Tapestry, you play as a civilization out of well, about 30-odd now. Mm. But, um, but you can get a bonus civilization. I effectively become like a joint civilization via a couple of freaky little things. And by some incredibly freaky little things, some people have managed to make that two civilizations into six, seven, eight, ah! because of some freaky combination. Oh That's God. how people get these ridiculous scores yeah. that come out. Can't even fit them on the damn table. Well, <laughs> let me try and play with them, which is where it gets ridiculous. But it's, it's very, very funny in that regard. And that kind of gets around that thing about the competition in the those big booming points come at the end. So you've got the score is accumulating all the way through, but your first round is short, like any engine builder, and you'll think your second round is a little bit longer. And so it's only really in the last sort of like 15, 20 minutes of the game that you're going to realize who's going to power ahead, even if they're going to power ahead by a lot. Mm. 
I think another game that's quite like that actually, which is going to sound really funny, is Bunny Kingdom. Mm. If you have either of you ever played Bunny Kingdom, I think I've played no. Bunny Kingdom with you having a Bonnie. Well, we were going to, but it's it's like tapestry. It's a lot longer than I play these days because I'm a light game player now and I tend to avoid the longer games. Bunny Kingdom, I've not played it either. Jen, you've mentioned it before as something that we need to get to the table. We need to have a game of Bunny Kingdom because it looks like this really cute, light and fluffy game that's got all these really cutesy little moving parts to it, but it's incredibly competitive. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot going on in it. It's definitely one that... Until you get right to the end of the game, you have absolutely no idea who is going to win because there's all sorts of cards and stuff that you can get during the game which are going to boost your end-of-game score depending on other things that you play. So there's a few times that Rod and I have definitely played that where he hasn't realised or other people in the game haven't realised that, you know, quite how one of the cards works because this is a deck builder kind of like Sushi Go where you're passing around the cards rather than just deck building from buying. So oh, what what kind of game is that called again, Chris? You know, where you're, you're passing it around? Drafting game. Drafting, drafting. thank you. You're passing you. the hand around and you're picking one from each other. Drafting game. Yes, it is a drafting game. So I think there's definitely some cards in there that if you don't read them carefully, you could think, oh, that's crap and pass it on when actually it's a very powerful card. But again, it's something that's got to line up with the rest of the way that you've played the game along the way. So it can definitely be a deceptively competitive and cutthroat game, even though it just is so damn cute. And to be fair, as much as Bonnie is a light and fluffy and happy and cooperative games kind of person... (laughs) I love a good cutesy cutthroat game. (laughs) Anything that has really cute looking little components, but actually very competitive. That's me. That's my whole jam. (laughs) Back to a kidna shuffle again. Yes. (laughs) Keep coming back to a kidna shuffle. Need to get my hands on a copy of that because that's definitely a very, very cute game. But look, you know what? It's been absolutely fantastic having you as a guest today, Bonnie. Thank you so much. No problem. And um, you know what? I think in in summary, Lost Ruins of Arnak, if you haven't played it, definitely give it a go, especially if you are somebody who likes a game with a lot of moving parts. You've played a few games before. Maybe you want to introduce some board game friends who are sort of a little bit newer but have played some games now into something a little bit more comprehensive. This is a really good game to do that because it has got a great theme. It has got really pretty parts. It is visually just delightful. It does take a little bit more setup. So, yeah, give it a go. What would you say to it, Chris? I'd, I'd agree with that. And it's one of those games is like a clockwork system. If you, if you kind of think about a game where you're trying to work out how do you get all the right pieces and sliding blocks together in order to get to where I want. If you like that kind of puzzle, then you're going to like Lost Ruins of Arnak. It's all about trying to slot those things in in just the right place to be able to get the score you're going to. The bit about all the pieces in the setup, there are some decent inserts around for it. They can make that easier, they're cheaper. There is a full-colour folding space insert. Now, I'm really, really, really kind of, like, excitable when it comes to full-colour folding space <laughs> inserts because they're the coolest innovation in town. So folding space inserts, for those that haven't had them, are they kind of the, one of the cheaper brands of game inserts you can get, like foam core things. You stick them together with PVA glue, put them in your box, makes it easy to sort them out and get stuff out. 
So that solves the storage problem for Lost Ruins of Arnak. But they went from printing grey ones to doing some with beautifully like coloured art on the actual inserts. And they've only done a few. The Lost Ruins of Arnak one hasn't made it to Australia yet, but it's out in the rest of the world. So at some point it will. That would solve the problem, hands down, in terms of setup, because that basically gives you everything you need. Just take it out and it's there. Rod and I literally have this set of bowls that we've got for board games, which are the little plastic ones that pop out. So they store flat, but you can like pull them out and that the bottom bit pops out kind of, you know, like the dog walking water bowls that they, they're flat, but that, yeah, we've got some of those that were like specifically designed for holding board game pieces which is really great if you're not somebody who cherishes bits and pieces all over the place and you like a little bit of structure and order, definitely find some of those. I'll try and put a link to what I'm talking about in the podcast description so that you can see these particular bowls. And they're great for so many different games because there's five of them and quite often that's, you know, there's between sort of three to five components in a lot of games where you need to have you know, a bowl to put things in and they're quite big. So they're not so big that they're going to take up heaps of space on the table, but big enough to hold quite a few components. That's a completely different podcast topic. I've got these little 3D printed things that a guy made me in the UK that you can pull stuff out of. There's a YouTuber content creator in the UK called uh, Luke Hack, who does a broken meeple channel. And you'll notice if you see any of his vids and um, so if he comes to conventions, he just has this like massive heap of like silicon cake trays like muffin trays of different sizes Um, and uses those as chip trays and and basically for everything and they're quite good because although they're kind of it's just another pot you put something because they're squidgy you can put them into a pouring shape because the real thing when you've got like a bowl that you put something in is when you've got your little plastic bag and you've got the thing that you put the bits in and you try and pour the pieces from the thing you put the bits in back into the plastic (laughs) bag and they either go into the plastic bag or they bounce off the table and go everywhere else (laughs) And you're there in a crowded convention, crawling between people's legs, saying, it's all right, it's all right, it's all right, just don't mind me, trying to collect all your bits. So that pouring thing is quite good. But your bowls are quite easy to pour out as well, aren't they, Jen, I seem to remember? Yeah, they really are. They've got a hard plastic rim around the top, which keeps them in shape, but they're very easy to sort of get in there and get the bits out and just pour them back in, that's for sure. So that that's a completely different topic, which is the ridiculous, mm-hmm. absurd yes. things that people have. So the amount of like different like fishing tackle boxes, uh, little plastic pill oh, boxes, goodness. which you can order on on like uh, on, on Amazon. And I, there's one particular collection that I really like, and I know I put Melissa on our committee onto those as well. And they're great, but they come in multiple different sizes. And unfortunately, when you get the pack, you have to get more of the tiny, tiny size that fits about four tablets than anything else. And occasionally I find games that use them all. But what you really want is more of the slightly bigger ones. But there's some brilliant, brilliant, brilliant ideas out there. But just beware, it becomes an Aladdin's cave. And after a while, you're spending hours swapping (laughs) pots from one game to another to get the right one and not actually playing them. So (laughs) be be careful. That can be be a game in itself. Now, I think Arnak is a, a game that I didn't enjoy the first time I played it because I found it almost too dry and technical, and it lacks a bit of that fluidity. That's cut through a little bit, so I've started to explore the system, and with the expansion, because the expansion content is quite playful, and I think that's the thing which I found when I first played it, is that some of the game was a little bit like, this does this, this does this, this does this, this is what it technically does, it is like a machine, right? You know, kind (laughs) of, it didn't feel playful. The expansion makes it feel playful, 
somehow. Just it's still mechanical. It's only right. It's really, really good. And that is the one thing that I would recommend if that's what you're after. So if you like a good mechanically solid game, good chance you've already played that in that case, but it's definitely one we'd recommend. But if you are looking for a little bit more theme in it, the first thing is try and play someone else's copy first to check whether you like it, but see whether you can find someone who's got the expansion and dive in straight away to those asymmetric characters because they do add more flavor to the game. Uh, And that that, that makes a big difference. I think we'll have to play with the expansion. Yeah. Because I haven't played with it. Even though I've got the expansion, I haven't played with it. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us today. It has been absolutely awesome, like I said, having you with us, Bonnie. You can check out everything to do with Melbourne Meeples on our Facebook page, which if you just go to Facebook and search Melbourne Meeples, you find us. We've got a website. We've got an Instagram. Like normal, we'll have all the links below in the podcast information, and we hope you all have a fantastic couple of weeks playing some new board games. Bye for now. Bye.